0: Welcome back to the Climate Ready Podcast, everyone. This is Ingrid Timbo, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Alex Maroner. As we record this, the 24th Conference of the Parties, or COP24, of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is just wrapping up. With that in mind, we thought it would be highly appropriate to spend some time talking about climate and water policy.
1: Hey, everyone. It's safe to say that most of our listeners aren't the high-level politicians sitting behind closed doors and deliberating on the final agreements from COP24. And if that's the case, how and why should we get involved in policy? Why should those of us who work in more technical fields, whether that translates to engineering, finance, ecology, or otherwise, care about all this?
0: So I think part of the answer to that question may seem obvious, but I think there's a lot that might surprise you. For this conversation, we're taking a little bit of a different route. So instead of Alex and myself interviewing a guest, we have Climate Ready's Director and AGO's Coordinator, Dr. John Matthews, will lead today's conversation with Dr. James Dalton. In addition to being a great friend of Agua, James is the director of the Global Water Program at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN. More importantly, he is a living example of someone that truly bridges the gap between technical and policy fields. So I want to leave it at that and turn it over to the interview. But stick around afterwards for a brand new postcard from the future.
1: Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us your reviews and comments. We'd love to hear from you. And to stay up to date, follow us on Facebook using at Climate Ready Podcast and on Twitter using at Climate Pod. Enjoy the episode. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change. Focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. <laughs>
2: This is John Matthews with Climate Ready and Agua, and I would like to be able to introduce James Dalton, who is the director for the Global Water Program at IUCN. He's in Glon, Switzerland right now. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area at the moment, and we're going to have a conversation today about the involvement of technical professionals into the policy world. Good morning, James. Morning. Morning, John. Afternoon. Morning. I'm an ecologist, I'm a biologist by training, and you're an engineer. These are not two professions that most people would normally associate with being involved in policy work. When did you first begin doing policy work, and what was the type of engagement that you were acting in?
3: Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because it made me think back a little bit. I mean, I think probably when I first started working for DFID, the Department for International Development, the UK sort of development arm, what became clear to me, and I I was very fortunate, it was pure luck that I happened to be working there through the company I was working for officially, and I was dealing with day-to-day technical issues on projects that the department was financing around the world on infrastructure, water resources, and a lot of water supply and sanitation work. And we were also supporting more um, sort of thematically some of the core global water initiatives and networks around the world. And what became clear was that we would only support things at the time that obviously matched our development aid policy. And we would only therefore support things that we felt at the country level were both technical, but they were having messages to policy to help countries try and stay ahead of the game on issues and try and react to the pressures put upon their water resources at the national level through competition, overuse, pollution, and this is in the early 2000s, you know, climate change starting to enter that conversation. So that's really where it came from, for me, was understanding that this was a core element of the spectrum of skills issues you needed to deal with as a technical person. And if you only ever tried to enter that conversation from a policy perspective, you know, if you were sort of policy trained, you would miss some of the technical understanding of what really possible in a river basin. So that that's really where it came from for me. And then that sort of fed into how I tend to sort of try and bridge those arenas through the rest of my work from that time in around 2001.
2: So your initial entrance into the policy arena was a move from maybe working at more project scales or at a, at a river basin scale and then going to a national scale. Is that right?
3: That's right. Because I, the question was always about
2: how sustainable is this?
3: These one-off sort of initiatives are all very well, but no one's really looking at sort of how long they're surviving for as initiatives and how are they feeding into help inform policy so that we could get change through policy reform and changes and how that could link ultimately to if you want to, to do this type of work at, at a country level, policies need to be reformed, adjusted and changed. And, and alongside that, they need the financial resources to be able to actually implement and grow new approaches so how
2: how did you make the jump from the national scale to uh, global scale
3: well i think with water because it's so contextual you know to each basin and each country and the nuances of how water is used and abused at that level you start to see certain patterns so it's you know you don't translate an issue from angola to antigua potentially but you do start to see certain patterns in how things work and, and how um, there are successes and failures and how things can be adapted to different situations but also that there are these contextual issues to consider and so I think going from the national level you start to look and gain experience at regional levels and then that tends to put you more on a global stage and for some people they find that the global stage starts to get a bit too high level and a bit too distance from the real life issues on the ground but you but I, I found that a key strength is being able to sort of bridge those different layers. And for me, that became very clear when I was working in Central Asia, which was in the late nineties. And we were dealing with the Suridaya River and groundwater, but it was so dependent the sustainability of the of the interventions and the pressure on the river systems was so dependent on how the transboundary issues and the regional agenda required irrigation and how the climate was shifting, especially with the sort of decline of the RLC Sea, and the energy demand that was put upon the rivers in terms of storing water in the upstream hydropower dams, suddenly national
2: automatically
3: became regional.
2: That's interesting. So in a way, you were basically kind of trickling up the value chain of issues as you started to see broader patterns at each lower level that were maybe best handled at a higher level of governance. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's
3: where some of the challenges lie, because for many, you feel you can solve your problems at your level. Quite often, you just can't, because the institutions you're working with, they don't have the mandate to make those decisions. You have to go higher up the chain of command to get the change that you need to see further downstream at the basin level. And the further you go up the chain of command, the information they need and the way that they need it is different to how you need it at the basin level. So you suddenly have to start to employ different tactics and different approaches for what you know is happening at the ground, how that needs to influence further up the sort of institutional hierarchy.
2: Did you feel welcomed into that process as a technical person or did you receive glances askew at you um, about uh, who is this this nerd and why is he in here? (laughs) His suit is not anywhere near as nice as ours.
3: I think you have to have a certain thickness of skin, shall we say, that means that you can cope with that. I think if you're going to get into that space you have to be able to brush off those issues and focus on the bigger objective of what you're trying to contribute to around sustainable water management and and the uh, and you know the future of basins and and things with you know the future of economies and livelihoods and, and species within it you ha- you have to focus on some of the bigger picture issues and and I think not focus too much on those setbacks and I think you know to a certain extent that's about how you deal with that from a character perspective. And it plays out very easily in technical solutions because in technical issues, quite often you don't get the solutions the first time. You don't get them the third time. It's about revisiting and sort of iterating how you do things. And I think in policy work, it's it's almost the same process.
2: Did you also face some issues or concerns or even questioning by uh, other technical colleagues? Like, why are you moving out of your space? Why are you doing policy work? That's the role for the, the people in some other office or some other institution or some other organization. That's not your job.
3: Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I still get some of that. But I think in my understanding, at least in the early 2000s, there was a lot of discussion around the need to broker spaces in water resource management and other sectors. And, you know, that was about, well, it's all right having somebody technically talk about this, but someone has an opposing argument from a different sector or from a different institution. Therefore, we need to build the skills that broker between those issues a negotiation, a deal to understand each other's science and technical elements, to understand each other's policy perspectives and arguments to understand the economics of those arguments and then figure out very unlikely but are there win-win situations are there less lose-lose situations that you can compromise on and I think to me that's where there is an interesting space because that's really how we've learned to develop policy over the years anyway is to try and figure out what's the best thing to do that has the least negative impacts. And of course, it's an ongoing process.
2: That makes a lot of sense to me. I also see that there are some real risks, some uh, even some real failings when technical people uh, move into a traditional policy setting. Last week, uh, you know, we're we're talking in uh, December of 2018. The UNFCCC climate change conference is going on right now. I was in Poland in Katowice last week at the COP. And there was an event that uh, I was helping to moderate and there were a variety of technical people that were on the panel and one of them was a, a famous biologist and she was, uh, she was talking about one of the world's most famous e- ecosystems and how it has shifted in the last 10 or 15 years from being a carbon sink that is absorbing carbon from the atmosphere to being a carbon source that it has started to Uh, to emit carbon as a result of uh, land use change and shifts in precipitation patterns and and other issues. And someone in the audience asked her questions and said, you know, you're making some extremely alarming statements. You are basically saying that, that one of the great assets that we had to be able to help buffer climate change may actually have turned against us now. And from your perspective as a scientist, what do you think we should be doing? And I have to say, I was a little surprised by her answer. She she said, you know, we need more funding for monitoring, and that that to me is not, I mean, it's certainly not a policy response. I, I felt like, you know, it was a little bit like going into a doctor's office, and the doctor saying, you have cancer, and then and then the doctor just stands up and walks out of the room.
3: Yeah, this is a this is a challenge.
2: Yeah, so I think very often there's an assumption that. Scientists, engineers, other technical professionals have uh, that we have come down from on on high with the golden tablets and uh, that we are ready to uh, hand off our wisdom. And then we can retreat back to our ivory towered strongholds and policymakers will then make great decisions. But uh, I think uh, you show a a policymaker differential equation, you know, he or she is, is going to walk away. They need some translation and some support with that process and that really requires strong effort on our side.
3: I think the key thing here is that one of the challenges of getting science into policy is where the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. And I think one of the challenges of trying to translate technical science work into an environment of policymakers is that you have to accept that you're not going to get all that you want out of that conversation. And then you have to accept that It doesn't need to be perfect to the third decimal point. It needs to be instructive and it needs to point out the risks and the challenges and the costs of action and inaction. But I think the challenge for many scientists in that space is that if you don't get all the points across, if you don't describe the detail and make it as accurate as they scientifically want it to be, then they get frustrated with policy because it's not dealing with the nuances of what they're suggesting. and yet policy is about something that applies to all and that can be considered to be acceptable to all from an impact perspective rather than saying this has to be right for this ecosystem and this policy has to be right for this ecosystem and this policy has to be right for this business but it might be different for this business there has to be something that's workable you know from a sort of institutional and finance and the capacity of institutions to actually execute it and I think that's one of the challenges with taking science into policy is it does tend to feel, I think, threatened in some of those environments sometimes. And their reaction is normally, we can't give you an answer yet. We need more time to figure it out. Whereas actually from a policy perspective, and certainly for climate, we now need to be making some serious shifts in our societal behavior. And we, we have to do that now without knowing all the answers to the questions yet.
2: That's a very interesting uh maybe even a subtle point that, in effect, if you're willing and interested in going to engage on policy issues as a technical person, that you really need to be aware that you are playing according to somebody else's rules.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Otherwise, you stick out like a sore thumb, if that makes sense. You know, and sometimes sticking out like a sore thumb is also a tactic to employ at times as well.
2: I totally agree with that. I I can't tell you how many times uh, when I've been uh, in some policy setting, uh, often quite high level, where I am the only scientist in the room. And that's it's uh, both really frightening, because I know that that there are a lot of better scientists out there than I am, that they they probably have something much smarter, maybe uh, more credible to be able to say, but I'm the one who's there. And just being designated as the scientist of the room, actually, you are heard in a different way as that role uh, among a group of policy specialists who may not come across that many technical people through their work. I remember um, COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009, thinking, what am I doing going to this meeting? There, There were an estimated 35,000 people that were supposed to be in Copenhagen. And it was clear it was going to be a circus. I was going to be not even a, a significant trained monkey in that circus. I was probably more of an untrained monkey. But I felt personally like there were a set of issues that I may not have been the best person to represent them, but I also felt like there were so few others who might be there who could talk about these issues that I basically had to speak from many places, from many ecosystems, from many communities in that context. And just as you said, kind of tell the story of what climate adaptation looked like on the ground, what good adaptation looked like, what bad adaptation looked like, and be able to represent that some, somehow to bear witness to a, a kind of policy audience so that hopefully better policy would result.
1: I think
3: the thing with policy is it's very much the learning environment. You, you don't know the answer when when you're going in. And with policy, you'll never probably get to the answer. Some of that learning is is a lot of it is dealing with criticism from other sectors and dealing with criticism from policy or technical elements, you know, because suddenly you find yourself with a feat in a number of camps. But that actually, to me, I find gives you quite a lot of strengths because it allows you to understand the broader picture that you have to balance rather than trying to push your picture. And I think that's where you get successes is rather than. Trying to go for the ultimate answer to the ultimate question is much more about trying to understand what are the problems we've got to solve here. and We certainly are going to solve it through just looking at this problem from one particular angle.
2: I'm curious, what are some of the, the really pressing issues that you see from a policy perspective that either you've been tracking or you see emerging when you think about climate adaptation? I think there's too much
3: disconnect between sectors on solving adaptation challenges. And by that, I mean, if we're looking at clean energy from a mitigation perspective and we're looking at, say, hydropower or other renewables, we haven't quite yet understood the impact that it has on water and the benefits that good water management can bring to those mitigation solutions. But we haven't also properly understood the impacts of those mitigation solutions and how they relate to impacts on freshwater and increasing competition. Now, we know through various technical studies that these Relationships and links are there, but from an institutional perspective, we're just not there yet at getting this put together in a nice understanding of the framework that we're operating in of impacts, trade-offs, benefits, costs. So the economics is still really, really weak in this area. We haven't yet then understood that if we put together the right package of investment, so different finances looking for something in this space, that we could be contributing much more to the shifts in how river basins adapt to climate change and provide mitigation benefits. It's a much bigger scale way of solving the problem, but the problems are, combined, much bigger scale than we've dealt with before. And I think that's a real missing piece of the puzzle to me, is that the safe zone of institutions is to sit still within their silos. I think cities have got the potential to change that, you know, cities as they grow this mesh and mix of sectors and and institutions that are striving to keep the city working and growing and being economically productive and increasingly hopefully clean, green, breathable, healthy. And for that to happen, it also starts to look to invest around itself, where it gets its food from, where it gets its energy from. And I think these cities can be future engines of growth. But I think to me, there's a lot of complexity in solving these problems and we know what we want to do, but we haven't matured our institutions to be able to deal with it yet.
2: In a sense, what you're saying is that we know a lot more about how climate change is challenging institutions, uh, countries, ecosystems, and we need to think about what are the appropriate vehicles, the, the categories of institutions that we need to enable and support so that they can come up with more resilient practices. Is that right? Absolutely. And we know, we know what needs to happen. We do. We do
3: know what needs to happen. There's a lot of problems in making it happen. That's the challenge.
2: I'm also struck one of my favorite quotes that I like to paraphrase from uh, Georges Clemenceau. So he was the president of France during World War One. He said, war is too important to be left to the military men. And I, I, I would say that there's something true about policy, especially climate policy in a time when we have so much uncertainty about what best practices should be, about what economic development and resilience look like together, about how we actually enable climate mitigation, that in effect climate policy is too important to be left to the climate policymakers. It really needs the rest of us to be involved with it.
3: Absolutely. And I think policymakers that are willing to learn and talk and discuss, that's always a really good sign, because then you suddenly become an advisor into that process.
2: Do you think that we need to have more technical, more scientific people that are involved in policymaking?
3: Um, I think we need to have more of the right people in policymaking, if that makes sense. They're out there, but I think there's a a lot of technical people who've got fantastic skills in this world. It's just that they don't see the value maybe
2: of engaging with it, or they're not interested, or they've never really known how to. I was struck in graduate school uh, by how many brilliant professors and postdocs and grad students were around me and how they they knew so much about the state of the living world at at that moment. And I, I kept thinking, is there a way that they could be more involved with how people are making resource management decisions? And I remember thinking in a moment of almost anger and frustration, how it felt like so much of the Biological sciences was occupied in studying the wallpaper in a, in a house that was burning. And it was really frustrating that some of us needed to get outside the house and go run for firefighters. I think that's key. And, and some people don't like to engage in that way. So therefore, questions,
3: you know, is this, is policy work easy for you? Is it handy for you? But these are all skills that can be
2: learned. I agree. Um, I was asked by some students, uh, World Water Forum earlier this year how do you get involved in policy if that's something that you're interested in and you know i, th- I think part of my answer was to paraphrase what you just said basically to make sure you've listened really well yeah. and listen thoroughly yeah. that you you spend a lot more time listening maybe than talking and observing trying to empathize and understand to become conversant with, with those issues and the other part is also just to keep showing up
3: that's a very good point sort of showing up and listening and putting people into the conversation that you know might have an
2: alternative perspective or experience in that area or, or that's key do you have any any other advice for people with a technical orientation that would like to get involved in policy work
3: i mean i think the key thing is, is to ensure that you enjoy it and to engage and to learn and listen and offer your suggestions where you know where where you think you can rather than you know nobody wants to see people fail generally everyone wants to try and make policy circle work be it around water or climate adaptation try and be a success because we're all trying to normally aim towards very common goals. You may have different tactics of trying to get there, but the ultimate aims are all very similar. And so, you know, it's really about engaging and staying uh, open to issues and looking at opportunities where they come up that allow you to express your perspective on it and to bring your skills to the table. But remember the audiences that you're dealing with. They don't often need to have all of the detail. They just need to have some of the right detail and i think that's key is building the understanding over what that right detail needs to be and understanding therefore when do you put that on the table sage advice
2: thanks a (laughs) lot james i I really appreciate your time okay cheers thanks john yeah thanks
1: it was interesting getting to listen in on their conversation And one of the most important things to reflect on, for me at least, was this inherent tension between the need for precise and accurate technical evidence from scientists and the like versus the need for good enough evidence from policymakers. And that's all because policies, especially at higher levels, must inherently gloss over some nuances in order to be effective for a wide range of conditions. I can understand that it would be challenging for a scientist or engineer to let that go, but sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and live with good enough, otherwise you might be paralyzed into inaction on some topics where we really, really need policies in place right now.
0: As a more policy-oriented person who is also interested in science, I really liked John's comment that policy is too important to just be left to the policymakers. It's true, because if we're going to have any shot at effectively tackling pressing issues like climate change, We need scientists, engineers, and academics who are thinking about the policy applications of their work and engaging with the policymaking process to ensure that their work informs outcomes. And more than that, it's about bridging together all sorts of different sectors, especially when it comes to water and climate adaptations, because these issues have implications for transportation, agriculture, energy, finance, and so much more. With the need being out there, I hope that we've convinced at least a few of you to pay a little more attention to the policy world and get involved in whatever capacity you're able.
1: Before we go, we've got another excellent postcard from the future, this time coming from a future Beijing. This comes from Danielle Neighbor, a water researcher at the China Environment Forum at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.
4: It's 2050, and I've just arrived back in Beijing after four weeks in Washington, D.C., I'm again reminded by how differently day-to-day life looks for each capital city. Here in China, all the food and supplies I need are delivered by drones right to my door, except for one notable exception, water. I have to retrieve water every other day, where I stand in line for anywhere between two and six hours at the treatment plant. If I were ultra-wealthy, I could pay migrant workers to stand in line for me, but trustworthy water waiters cost a pretty penny. All others are notorious for stealing your water and replacing it with undrinkable polluted water from the river. That's not a risk I wanna take, so I spend every other afternoon in line, where I'm given three five-liter sacks of drinking water, my allotment for 48 hours. While in line, I try not to think of the old tap spigot in my apartment, which is rusted over and hasn't been in use for longer than I've been alive. It's not only a reminder of how old my apartment is, It's evidence of the fact that Beijingers once had running water at home. Long ago, after Beijing depleted its reservoirs in 2014, the capital began heavily relying on a massive infrastructure project that shuttles water from the country's southern provinces to arid northern regions. It also tried to implement water recycling, which was a smart move. In the face of a changing climate, water recycling can give cities a more self-sufficient water supply. The more water that's recycled, the less people must live at the whim of rain that may never come, or come in the form of a massive storm where a year's worth of water hits in a week. While recycling sounded promising in theory, the government took the wrong route with implementation. Instead of recycling water efficiently in a centralized plant, Beijing required individual landlords to recycle their own water at each building. The city's recycled water supply was almost completely decentralized. Unfortunately, the government didn't provide them with financial support, nor teach the landlords how to operate the plants. Tenants soon lost trust in the quality of water provided by such systems. They revolted in 2024, prompting the government to completely abandon all water recycling programs. Since then, the city relied solely on the massive pipes that brought water from South China for years afterwards. It wasn't until the South-North Water Transfer Project ran dry that the city began recycling its water in massive treatment plants. People started trusting the centrally treated water again, but the city was already so water-scarce that they implemented a water allotment program. It's been in operation for the last few years, but only those with official residence papers, called hukou, can get water. Last year, after many people without a hukou died from drinking polluted river water, the millions of migrants in Beijing revolted. Those of us lucky enough to have papers are too scared to speak out against the injustice. After all, we can't afford to be stripped of water access. In the U.S., both the public and lawmakers resisted water recycling as well. Anti-recycling campaigns convinced many people that recycled water was dangerous and akin to drinking toilet water. It took a lot of effort for experts to combat such resistance. Thankfully, California's successful implementation of a statewide recycling program in 2028 helped convince people of its safety. The national government slowly rolled out subsidies and water recycling mandates. While it prevented the need to publicly line up for water, like in Beijing, water bodies like the Colorado River reached dangerously low flows and critical species went extinct. In both China and the United States, these issues could have been avoided by properly implementing water recycling technology and investing in education programs to show the public that it is both harmless and invaluable. In the case of Beijing, the government shouldn't have implemented a decentralized recycling system in such a large urban area. Meanwhile, in more rural settings, decentralized recycling should have been implemented, along with subsidized training so those operating decentralized plants could do so properly. In both countries, if robust public education campaigns had been funded in 2018, the public distress that led to revolts in China and scarcity in the U.S. would have likely been avoided. The sooner recycling solutions are implemented, the more resilient cities will be to unexpected shocks that threaten water resources. Water recycling can and should serve as a part of a holistic solution for countries and cities to increase their water security. In fact, it's the only way Washington and Beijing are still capable of supporting the needs of their citizens at all. To those of you in 2018, it's not too late to push for laws and mandate the implementation of thoughtful and robust water recycling programs.
1: That's all for this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. We'd like to extend a thank you to our director, John Matthews, for leading today's interview, and of course to our guest, Dr. James Dalton. And last but not least, a big thanks to Danielle Neighbor for sharing her postcard from the future. Until next time, everyone. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.